When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello there. Thank you very much for downloading the second episode of The Political Party, my new podcast where I do a bit of comedy and then I'm joined by a political heavyweight. And in this edition, the man of the moment, the man of the month, Mr Nigel Farage joined me. This was recorded a week before the Eastleigh by-election. No one really knew UKIP were going to do so well back then. An incredible guest um, and obviously an amazing result for them. So here you go. This is episode two of The Political Party with Nigel Farage. <laughs> Good evening. Hello. Thank you very much for coming. Good evening. Um, I'm always tempted to take that applause like a politician, sort of handshake my way around you, but I think that would be a, a bit corny, to say the least. Good evening. Thanks very much for coming. Uh, tonight's uh, political party, we've got Nigel Farage as a special guest in the second half, which of course is very exciting. In the first half, we'll be having a bit of a laugh and a joke about politics. I um, started today, as I do most Wednesdays, by watching Prime Minister's Question Time. Anyone else watch it? <laughs> well, if there's one gig in the country where people might have watched it, it should be this one. Uh, I'm a big fan of it. I watch it all the time. I'm absolutely obsessed with it. And I know now, now that Blair's gone, it's not as exciting anymore now that it's Ed Miliband and against David Cameron. But the backbenchers still make it very exciting. I like the atmosphere in the Commons. I mean, there must be people who have been to see it live. The people who have been to see Prime Minister's Questions or sat in the Commons for a debate. It's incredible, isn't it? There really is. The first time you go, there's an energy in that place that you, you don't get on television. So if we could tonight, folks, I'd like to recreate it. <laughs> I'd like to recreate the House of Commons. Now, entry-level material in the House of Commons is, is simply saying, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> just after anything, really. So if we could all... I'll say something, then when I come to a natural end, if you could all just join in. So I'll say, and it should be happening in Britain's schools. Yeah! yeah. yeah. It's good fun, isn't it? Isn't it exciting being a politician? <laughs> and it sounds so much... It sounds like you know what you're talking about. If you go, fucking right, Terry. You know, it sounds good. You try that down the dog and duck on Saturday. Arsenal, mate, they can't defend. <laughs> he knows his stuff, doesn't he? Chris Hewn has been another major story in the papers. I mean... The problem is, right, the problem I have is I never liked Chris Hewn. Yeah. <laughs> I never liked him, right? He's not my cup of tea. As far as I'm concerned, he bought his way into that Le- Lib Dem leadership contest. He's one of the most unremarkable politicians there is. He's the only man who sounds like he's had his personality Botoxed. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a very good idea. The, uh... He's just got the flattest voice in politics. I um, have. Did you see when he came out of the court? There's a bit where he comes out, and I f- anyone who's been found guilty, for some reason then, I start feeling sorry for them. But there's a bit where he comes out to the press plate and goes... Uh, I've got a short statement to make, if anyone... Uh, and I thought it was going to say, is interested. <laughs> but he said, Kinnear? Uh, yeah, I pleaded guilty. You know, something I did ten years ago. Um, now I'm going to resign as an MP. That was it. <laughs> Unremarkable. <laughs> the problem is, I never liked him. I thought he was actually quite nasty. But then you, you'd see all the stuff about his relationship in the papers. You think there's only three points anyway, all that sort of thing. 
You see a man being kicked in the public arena and I don't like it. And then another part of me thinks, live Dems go on a prison. Yes! Fucking brilliant! Because Labour and the Tories have had people go to prison for years! Oh, get a few Lib Dems in there! Uh, I do feel sorry for Abby. There's so many parts of it that are out of order. I mean, I feel. what He resigned as an MP, which is the right thing to do, I think. Because. You can't really come back after something like that. You can't have Chris Hune... Uh, I mean, because if he stays an MP, you might potentially get back in the Cabinet. David Cameron can't have that. You can't have someone around the Cabinet table that's done time. <laughs> now, it's bad enough having the big beasts of the Cabinet. The last thing you want is Chris Hune at the end with a skinhead covered in tats. Because <laughs> he's toughened up on the inside. <laughs> and when David Cameron goes, uh, Chris, sorry, we're talking about uh, carbon emissions. Anything you want to add? Chris Hune just goes... You think you know it all, don't you? <laughs> can't have that. You can't have him. I mean, I'm a Labour man, right? One of my big idols was Gordon. Gordon Ramsay. And he... <laughs> this series, Gordon Behind Bars, was groundbreaking prison drama. I don't want to see Chris Hughes subject to the ignominy of having to go on Gordon Behind Bars. Chris has just drawn three years for cheating his wife and the course of justice. And he always does those silly things, silly Ramsey, where he'll do like a little sort of motto for the, for the show. says, so perverting the course of justice. This lot want to pervert the course of his arse cheeks. Fuck me. <laughs> what? This is horrible. Hold <laughs> on, Chris Hume doing that. And he always does some like little thing as he walks off, doesn't he? He would say something like, traditional American cookie. Fucking shit, more like. <laughs> it's not even a pun, Gordon. Put some effort in. Lib Dem, limp dick, more like. <laughs> Out of ten, I give that souffle three. And don't think about giving those points to your fucking wife. <laughs> God, <laughs> leave poor Chris alone, man. You can't have a man out on the stump that's been to prison either. You know, politicians now like to do the personal stories. That's what they like to do. I'm in a black man in Plymouth. He told me he might vote Conservative. You can't have people who've been inside doing that. You can't have Chris Hume at the next election going, I met a guy called Stokesy. He drew a five stretch for ABH. And he told me that the bedroom tax is literally throttling his small business. It's not going to carry the same weight. Now, obviously, what's going to happen now? There's going to be a by-election in Eastleigh. Is anyone here going to campaign on it, by the way? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most reluctant campaigner on earth. Who was that? That was amazing. You're the back, mate. What's your name? Sam. Sam, nice to meet you. What party are you going to be campaigning for? Oh. Order. 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 Have you campaigned on a by-election before? A general election. Um, in which seat was that? Did you win it? Yeah, I did. Fucking did. Who said Liberals can't be hard and all? Good for you, mate. Fucking did, mate. Where are your mob? We fucking run you. We turned up, right? Down at the camp. 30 of them. Tooled up to fuck. Handed out a few Iraq leaflets. See you later. Nice. It always gets airy in a by-election, though, doesn't it? Has anyone here campaigned on a by-election? No one sounds happy about it, does it? Yeah, oh, God. There's a few people over here. Was there someone over here that campaigned in one? No. 
some, some of the people over here. Um, do you what, mate? <laughs> oh, is it me, mate? <laughs> oh, yeah, I have a campaign in Violet. What was it? Leeds Northwest, mate. Were you the Labour candidate? <laughs> I don't want to talk about it, mate. <laughs> Two years I've been living with that. Uh, Leeds North- but they, they are. For those of you that haven't been, they're ferocious. They're not like general election campaigns, which are balmy anyway. By-election campaigns are bloody, aren't they, James? They're nasty. They are cre- like The first time I ever went on one, I couldn't believe how close to the line parties were in terms of... And, I'm being, and all parties are guilty of this. Stirring up racial tension, stirring up religious tension, just and what they do, they pour all the resources that you'd usually get on one general election campaign into one constituency for three weeks. It is intense. The people there are so fed up with politics by the end of it, I'm never sure if they're gonna vote. They hate you, they hate everyone. You're having like poster wars with local chip shops. Oh, you said you were gonna put up a Labour poster. Well the Lib Dems came around, oh well I'm not gonna buy chips here again. What have I become? Of course I'm gonna buy chips here again. I'm gonna buy chips everywhere. I don't even know why I made such a ridiculous commitment. But they get so... Fr- and you get fight- Honestly, fights in the street. At some point, the candidate will break down. Physically and emotionally. I remember seeing a candidate who, until that point, I thought was quite sensible. I met him in the street to do some leafleting. I gave him these leaflets and he went, I'm not delivering those. I said, well, they're the only ones we've got. He just went, okay. Ah! He <laughs> up in the air and walked off. And I thought, I don't think we're going to win this pilot. Nick Clegg, I'm not sure if he, where the Deputy Prime Minister will go, because usually it's party leaders don't go if you're in government to these, these by-elections, but uh, Nick Clegg will be there, I'm sure. Nick Clegg, who was the subject of one of Chris Hume's briefing notes, Calamity Clegg. I don't know if anyone remembers the 2007 Lib Dem leadership campaign. <laughs> Even the Lib Dems in the room can't, can't remember it. But what happened was, and this was outed on the, on the politics show, Chris Hoon circulated a briefing note called Calamity Clegg, in which he slagged off Nick Clegg, right? And it came out, and they had to face each other on TV, and I managed to, g- I managed to get hold of it. I put the tweet out earlier this week. Someone gave me a copy of it. I found the, um, the original briefing note, Calamity Clegg. You would be amazed how accurate. This is phenomenal. Chris Hoon, back then, in 2007, well, it's obviously in political language, but you people can read behind the, you know, read in between the lines. You'll be amazed how much you saw come in. This is amazing. Uh, I believe that Nick Clegg continues to flip-flop on the major issues facing both the party and the country. Were the Lib Dems to form part of a government after the next election, so you could say, you know, 2007, no one was really talking about coalition then, arguably quite a good shout to sort of see that on the horizon. I have no reason to suspect otherwise than that Nick Clegg would continue to perform U-turns on major pieces of Lib Dem policy, even tuition fees. This is 2007, and it just ends by saying, don't buy Findus. <laughs> I'm just telling you what the stars are telling me. <laughs> Old mystic Chris. <laughs> I think I genuinely had some people with that. Wow. <laughs> Chris Hume. This is amazing. What a legend. Um, now, Nick Clegg, of course, uh, has said that he is shocked and saddened by the fact that Chris Hume is going to jail. Yeah, right. In the, same, in the same way that I would be amazed and overjoyed if I lost my cock. <laughs> no, I'm delighted, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got in a bloody way anyway, to be honest. As if. Uh, Nick Clegg, uh, a man who... I, I don't know if anyone else subscribes to Nick Clegg's weekly emails. <laughs> yeah, a few people, of course, a few people. There's some political people here. Well, I've got some of them here for you. Um, 
I think these are naff to say the least, but I love him. Nick Clegg's like one of those people, you know you meet people sometimes and you think, I've met him five times now, I still don't know what he does for a living. <laughs> but I'm sure I met him on the Alpha course. <laughs> just the sort of guy's permanently in like an open necked blue shirt, perfectly fine, doesn't eat at chain restaurants. <laughs> that sort of guy. Now I think the stuff he puts in his emails is quite odd. This is what he put in January, first one of the year. Hope you had a good Christmas and New Year. Like many of you, I spent my time at two family get-togethers. Although I hope you didn't have time to travel quite the distance I did between England and Spain. <laughs> Anyone else think that's off during a recession? <laughs> Don't know about you lot, all looking knackered. I've been on holiday. <laughs> Keep warm during the winter, grannies. I will, thanks to this new Prada coat I got. 700 quid, down from a grand. <laughs> what sort of message is that? This one here, dear friend, he's forgotten my name. Even Papa John's gets my name right. <laughs> Come on, Nick. Make the effort, mate. <laughs> Dear friend. I feel like I'm betraying a friend now. Reading out my personal communication from Nick. The GDP figures are always surrounded by secrecy. But I'm among a small group of people who get to see the data the day before it's released. But with strict instruction not to breathe a word to anyone. Isn't he happy to be in government? You like David Brent. Yeah, uh, got the data, so... Can't say anything. Yeah. <laughs> Confidential in a way, so. Yeah. Got tipped off, so. DPM, so. Whatever. <laughs> What's it? Now, this, this is my favourite. This is my favourite, just because he almost. This one is like a little story about Steve Webb, the pensions minister. Oh, word for word, this is what he writes in his emails Dear friend, this week I want to tell you about my good friend and colleague, Professor Steve Webb. Are you sitting comfortably? He doesn't put that. <laughs> Steve is incredibly clever and understands more about pensions than almost anyone else in the country. <laughs> Sounds like he's about to introduce him at some regional sales conference. <laughs> so you can imagine my delight when I got to appoint Steve as Minister for Pensions. It felt like serendipity. Steve Webb's going out with Kate Beckinsale. <laughs> and it wasn't exactly a big surprise. And Steve came back with a glint in his eye and said, I've got a plan. Let's completely redesign the state pension. <laughs> wow. Tune in next week to find out how Julian Hubbard is saving the country one post office at a time. <laughs> Whoa. Hold on to your butts. Now, um, we're starting a new thing here uh, at, the, at the St. James Theatre. We're going to give away um, a backbencher of the month award. Um, for funny behaviour in the previous month. So here's the award. It's over here. And the nominees uh, are in. The uh, votes have been counted and verified. Tonight's machine is going to be. And <laughs> the nominees for Backbencher of the Month this month are Alex Cunningham MP, Labour, Stockton North, for his question to the Prime Minister in the Commons when he asked if traces of stalking horse have been found in the Conservative Party food chain. <laughs> Alex Cunningham. <laughs> the other nominee, Michael McCann, Labour, East Kilbride, for his question to the Prime Minister last week. Can the Prime Minister confirm if Atos have declared Richard III fit for work? <laughs> Michael McCann clearly getting the award for the only MP who checks Twitter in the morning. But the winner, I'm proud to announce, is Michael Fabricant. 
the Conservative MP for Litchfield, for a string of tweets already this month, which have included, you learn something new every day. Blowjob is the same in Danish. Hashtag Borgen. <laughs> it's an MP. Here's another one. Walked in with last night's dinner jacket on, sans bow tie. Told 11-year-olds in the chamber, at night, I play trombone in a Soho strip club. Teacher unamused. <laughs> Ledge. And this. On, H- on HS2, this is Fabricant's unique take. I warned the Commons that because very few pendolinos stop at Litchfield, but roar through at 125 miles an hour, commuters on the platform could get sucked off. <laughs> The man, the legend. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this has been a phenomenal first half. Thank you very much uh, for for being so wonderful. We're going to take a quick break now, so refresh yourselves, get yourselves a drink, uh, and in the second half we'll be joined by uh, the pinnacle of the evening, the wonderful Nigel Farage. So for the time being, thank you very much for your attention and your laughter. I've been Matt Ford. I'll see you in the second half. Thank you. second half, uh, this is the bit where we'll, we'll do about an hour of, uh, of questions with Nigel, I'll ask most of them, but uh, about halfway through I shall come to the audience, so last time with George Galloway, um, I couldn't see everyone for starters, <laughs> boom a week, a month later, crikey, <laughs> alright, hard case, um, if you do it, um, if you think now, because I think some people were a little bit backward in coming forward last time, and I know it can be awkward if you're not used to speaking in public, but if you have got a question you want to ask Nigel, Stop mulling it over now so that when I do come to the audience, people are sort of ready with their hands up because I don't, want to, I don't want people to miss out and I don't want us to feel like people in the room haven't had the opportunity to ask a question either. So, uh, without further ado, I mean, this is... What I wanted to put this night on, oh, George Galloway did the first one, it was absolutely wonderful in the crowd, many of you uh, have come back tonight. It was just a remarkable atmosphere and it is absolutely essential, really, that we get politicians that are exciting and interesting because the reason I want to put a show on like this is because I want to show that even though the politicians leading our mainstream parties might not turn us on that much, there's still interesting people in politics, and politics itself is engaging. And there's something actually quite entertaining about hearing someone talk about what they believe and why they believe it, regardless of ideology, regardless of what, whatever else. So that's why I'm delighted that you've all come down tonight, people of different political persuasions, to come and hear arguably <coughs> the most controversial politician in the country, arguably the most exciting... Uh, and I dare say, probably one of the most candid guests uh, we, will, we will have down at this show. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's my great honour to introduce Mr Nigel Farage. <laughs> Thank you. Very nice intro. Very good. Well, Nigel. Well, I haven't got much use for that, really. Have I? <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate. Um, well, the, the tradition here down at the show is that each guest provides uh, the next question for the next guest. And last month we had George Galloway. And now he asked you this question. Right. So even though it's going to be me asking it. I'm looking forward to this, yeah. Do you need to be? <laughs> <laughs> I feel guilty reading this out. Do you need to be a white, slightly red-faced, Union Jack, waistcoated Englishman, shouting boo at Johnny Foreigner, 
at the channel ports to support UKIP. Poor old George. <laughs> he just doesn't get it, does he? I mean, George is someone that talks about democracy, uh, that talks about national self-determination, particularly in many of the um, Arab states, um, and yet somehow thinks that the UKIP campaign is based on dislike of foreigners. Well, I can tell all of you now, if you don't know, I'm married to a European. No. <laughs> Honestly. Honestly. No, I'm married to a girl from Hamburg, so don't, tr don't tell me about the dangers of living in a German-dominated Europe, all right? <laughs> you know, I know all about that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the I, no, I haven't finished yet. <laughs> and in my career, yes, I, unlike the rest of them, you know, the college kids that run our three parties, you know, the, the people I can't even tell apart, um, unlike them, I, for 20 years, I had a career... I worked in the city of London, and I can tell you, Matt, I worked damned hard up until lunchtime every single day. <laughs> no, I really did. <laughs> and, just to prove my pro-European credentials, during that time I worked for two French banks. So there's no anti-European Johnny Foreigner prejudice there, is there? Although it's true, they did both sack me for insubordination, <laughs> but I'm trying not to bear the grudge. Uh, you know, this idea that UKIP is anti-European, that George seems to believe, is, is below me. Um, and the idea that you have to be white... Well, you know, our candidate in the Croydon North by-election was Winston Mackenzie. So after ten years of them trying to call us racist, we picked Winston to fight a by-election for us, who then said he thought gay marriage was objectionable and violent. Now we're queer bashers. <laughs> I mean, we can't win, really, can we? I mean, yeah. This is a problem, though, isn't it, with... <laughs> you, know, <laughs> do you know... Do you know, Matt, in the European elections of 2009... <laughs> we had... We had more black and ethnic candidates on the European Euro election list than the Liberal, Democrat, Conservative or Labour parties. So, you know, this is just blind, ignorant prejudice from George. I do like George, because he's a smoker, and I admire that. <laughs> But beyond that, but, uh, just chuck the question back at him, please. <laughs> <laughs> UKIP does have an identity crisis, though, doesn't it, with regards to your, your tone on Europe that people do I've perceive... I've got no identity crisis at well, all. Well, you know, no. any party that on its website has to describe itself as non-racist in the first sentence... <laughs> well, 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 I think because of the sneering media, uh, that was an important thing to do. And unlike your party, the Labour Party, where, of course, in the north of England, you've had elected BNP councillors defect to Labour, and you've been happy to ha very happy to have them in your party, um, unlike you and the others, you know, we actually, in the constitution of UKIP, say that if you've been a member of an extremist organisation, uh, the Labour Party isn't yet one of them, but it may be soon, uh, but if you've been a member of the Socialist Workers Party or the BNP, we don't even want your 30 quid to be a member of the party. So I've done all of that to, and I've put that statement on the website, to protect us against that prejudice that appears to exist amongst our media establishment. But it's a prejudice based on the sort of things that your candidates have said in the past, right. perhaps the sort, of, the sort of tone, but the tone of the debate, isn't it? On whenever what have our candidates said in the past? But well, Go on, tell me. Diane James, your candidate now in Eastleigh, said on, yes. on the 1st of January, the floodgates... Yeah, but that was ages ago, I mean, that was yesterday. <laughs> 
The floodgates will open for Bulgarian and Roman citizens to come here. Yes, it w well, they will, yes. We will have to deal with Romanian criminal gangs pickpocketing. To talk about immigration that sort well, of way... Well, actually, I mean, I mean, she's wrong in a sense, because we already are. And but, but, the but, 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 Nigel, and to be the, fair... Well, no, I mean, let, let's deal with this. But, but when candidates talk like that, it creates an impression, doesn't it? And well, I know I'm going to go further than her. Um, <laughs> the truth of it is uh, that the Metropolitan Police figures issued for the last, last year um, show that 90% of ATM frauds are already conducted by Romanian organised criminal gangs. Now, you know, I think our attitude towards immigration ought to be like the Australians. We ought to be saying to people, look, you know, we want very good people to come here from all over the world, and we couldn't care less what colour they are, uh, what religion they are, what height they are. Um, we just want people um, who are not suffering from life-threatening diseases, who don't have serious criminal records, um, and who are prepared to come here and be part of this community. And the problem that Diane James was raising yesterday is that because of European Union rules, uh, we can't deport people who come here and commit crime. Now, isn't that a perfectly reasonable and sensible position for any country to take? It's reasonable and sensible, I think, to talk about immigration in a balanced way. And to, I don't think anyone wants criminals here, whether they're British, European or, or, or any other. But to use words like floodgates to talk about criminal gangs, doesn't that create uh, an unbalanced view of immigration? Well, when the majority of people <coughs> who come here, Nigel, <coughs> do come here to work, do come here to contribute to our national life, and, have, uh, and Britain has been and is a proud multicultural society and is such a strong economy because of the, the mass migration that we've had throughout our history. Well, think, no, 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 we've never had mass migration in our history, anything like we've had uh, since Blair came to power. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Blair opened the doors, uh, not just to Europe, but to the whole of the world, um, in a way that we've never... I mean, OK, let's just think about, let's just think about immigration to Britain post-1945, all right? So we, 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 we think about Windrush, um, and we think about, you know, curry houses opening, and... Uh, our cuisine without doubt improving from what was a very low standard. Um, and what we forget is that immigration into Britain from 1950 up until 1997 ran at 30 to 50,000 people a year. There was the odd exception, uh, such as refugees. You know, when Armin threatened to kill all the Asians in Uganda, we said, come here, and 27,000 did. But apart from that, 30 to 50,000 people a year came to Britain. Uh, the last year for which we have figures, full figures, 2011, 591,000 people came and settled in Britain. We've been through, in the last 10 to 15 years, uh, migration into Britain on a scale that we've never seen in the history of these islands. And our argument is, we're not against anybody from anywhere, but we ought to have a degree of control, and we have no control over who comes here from uh, the European Union. And back in 2004, when you were busy um, with the excellence of Peter Soulsby, um, I bet he's going to be a good mayor, isn't he? Um, and, and, and David Blunkett then was Home Secretary, and he predicted that as a result of the opening of the doors to Poland and the rest of Eastern Europe, an extra 13,000 people a year would come to Britain. Um, well, perhaps he was preoccupied with his private life at the time, I don't know. Um, I'm only jealous. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the fact is that in the first year, nearly a million came. So, so what we're saying is this, that to open the door to Romania and Bulgaria, given that 44% of Bulgarians are living below the poverty line, and th this is not Dave Cameron's poverty line, by the way. Dave has bought in to the idea of relative poverty, which to Dave means 
if you haven't got two four befores on the drive, you know, you qualify as being poor. These are people who can't even feed themselves. And frankly, if I was a young Bulgarian, I would be, pa I would be packing my bags now. But Nigel, the notion of Europe, we can also emigrate abroad. There's plenty of Britain's had. You talk about the 500 or so thousand people that came in the, in the, in the last uh, period that you gave figures for. About yeah. 300,000 left, you know, overall. Left not to go and claim benefits. No, but to go and work. And not everyone who came over here does claim benefits. But you, what you have is, in Europe, people have been able to go abroad. And the British, my main problem with this is, I think the British have been re reluctant global citizens. And I want kids but in this country to be able to go abroad, to go to Europe, to study in France, to study to in Germany. be joking. <laughs> Britain and Ireland have more people working across the rest of the world than France and Germany and the rest of the European Union added up together. We are far more of a global country At the top than the end. rest of Europe. But for, for, for young kids, maybe 18, 19, studying in, in British universities now, yeah. we should think nothing in five or ten years of them, them studying in France or Germany. Well, hang on. How many students aged 18 go on a gap year to Frankfurt? That doesn't count. Just nobody, 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 nobody. <laughs> they, they go to the, they, they, they go and climb the Andes. They go off to the Far East. You know, Europe isn't some big sort of exciting adventure playground. And most of those Brits that go abroad are retired people who go buy properties uh, and spend their money um, and are not taking benefits directly from that system. And and the problem we've got is this, Matt. When the door opened to Poland, we opened the door to people to come to work. And in most cases. Actually, the Poles were bloody good workers. Yes, that's the question. No question about that. No question about that. And if you were running, I mean, if you, you know, if you own five thousand acres of Herefordshire, uh, picking apples, you know, it's ideal, isn't it? Put a put a couple of hundred caravans in, fill it up with Lithuanians, make them work all the hours God sends. I mean, for you as an employer, it's a win-win. But to have an but, but to have an oversupply in the unskilled labour market in Britain at a time of youth unemployment of twenty-two percent, I suggest to you doesn't make sense. The problem I have with this argument is that when people say we've had so many people come into the country as immigrants and we have so many jobs uh, that have been taken and so many people unemployed. At the height of the last economic boom, which wasn't that long ago in the noughties, we had a million jobs vacant in the economy and a million people on the dole. There are some people in this country that frankly don't want to work and actually tackling welfare dependency well, amongst white British people is a bigger problem I think that's true. than encouraging people. Our economy has been so vibrant. Our economy survived the recession of 2000. A lot of people in this country don't realise there was a global recession in the year 2000. American went under and so did other European countries. We weathered that largely because we had vibrant immigration into this country to plug those gaps and because of strong interest rates and inflation. Well, I don't think anybody would argue that since 2004 that vibrant immigration, as you put it, has helped our unemployment figures. Nobody, no economic analysis can say anything other than it has directly caused unnecessary unemployment in the British economy. And you're right, of course we've got some layabouts who don't want to work, we all know that. That's true. But have you ever known a time when the British government actually, as a matter of policy, says all young British people are useless, lazy, and don't want to work? It's rubbish. Actually, there are hundreds of thousands of youngsters out there desperate for work. They're good people who want to get jobs, and they now find themselves completely priced out of the marketplace. Where do you and stand I'm amazed that socialists can't see this. Well, I'm, I wouldn't really describe myself as a socialist. Oh, you're New Labour, of New Labour, well, yeah. I'm a, Well, I'm a pragmatist. <laughs> I'm a Blairite. So, Blair, you, so, right, you, yeah. so you could support anybody, really, couldn't you? That's the beauty of it, Nigel. <laughs> <laughs>
But I'm, I'm sort of in the middle. I, I agree with a certain amount of immigration. I, I sympathy with you, Kevin. I have sympathy with, with the people in the Tory party that said that immigration has gone too far. I do have issues with uh, communities, as we say, that I don't think have perhaps have been uh, integrated as well as th they could yeah. have done. But these things are teething problems. We live in a global economy. And the reality is the direction of travel is that the world is going to get more diverse. Populations are going to spread far more easily. <laughs> that Britain just has to live to learn in this new global world. Never in the history. And that it's exciting, Nigel. No, no, no. Ma you and I can go and live in France. Ma wow. <laughs> well, my, well, mind you, the lunch is pretty good. But, <laughs> but, I mean, Matt, never in our history. Shouldn't we embrace this? Well, well, you could, of course, take that argument to the logical ends. Why not have an open door to the whole of the world? So why just, in, in your case, Matt, why just restrict a total open door to labour and benefits, which begins next year, on January the 1st, to remain in Bulgaria, why not include Turkey? Why not include the whole of Africa? I mean, I mean is, is that what you're saying? I mean, you're arguing we shouldn't have control. And I'm arguing that as a nation state, we should have control. No, I'm saying that we should have control. And that I, well, yeah, that I don't want... Obviously, no one wants criminals well, coming I'm over. sorry, but you're misunderstanding the argument here, aren't you? The point is... <laughs> the point is that if you're members of... Look, the European Union, this isn't a common market. This isn't just some free trade club with a couple of rules um, and occasionally we get a bit pissed off about the bananas or whatever it may be. We are members of a political union. And as a result of that, Bulgaria and Romania become, from next year, part of our country. Just as Scotland, Wales and Liverpool are. Um, <laughs> well, well, we were talking about benefits, weren't we? You know. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a scouser somewhere in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going for Kenzie. Nigel, don't you worry, though, that sometimes the tone you take, that this, sort of, this sort of view of foreigners as being, is it fair to say, a negative thing, that you would rather no, we, we no, would have no, less immigration? No. Managed migration has been an enormous positive benefit to this country. We manage migration from 1945 until 1997, well, we are, of all the countries in the European time zone, uh, we are the one that has, the, that has always had the most harmonious race relations, uh, the best levels of integration, uh, the biggest number of migrants being successful, whether it's in business or sport. Or, you, know, you compare the way we've dealt with this to France and Germany and the rest of Europe, and there's a record to be proud of. But what is now putting us over a tipping point is that the numbers that are coming are so great, are so completely out of control, that it is absolutely impossible to integrate that number of people. And that's why if you drive up, you know, the A1, go up the eastern spine of England, and you see every single market town, as you drive up through the east of England, has frankly become ghettoised since 2004, and that is not a good, healthy thing for British society. No, but it's, it's an exaggeration. Well, I mean, well, well, no, no, no. I mean, have you been to Boston? Yeah. Have you? I have, yeah, Boston in Lincolnshire, it's near Skegness. It is, poor old Skegness, <laughs> yeah. No, I used to, I've been to Boston a few times and it had, uh, I think that was where Kilroy was knocking about, wasn't it, when he was... Uh, oh, don't remind me of him, I'm trying to enjoy myself. <laughs> well, can't I'm, I'm trying to enjoy myself. I have been to Boston, and I've been to parts of the... Uh, Boston, of Lincoln, the yeah, Peterborough, yeah, yeah. and you find whole areas of the town now completely non-English speaking, um, and that's because but we've allowed too many people 
too quickly to come into an A. I know you're being entertaining and that's part of your persona, mm. but to say that the whole spine of the A1 has become ghettoized, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. do you think that sort of adds, My fear no, is, Nigel, that, no, I, if, if, uh, that Matt, I believe Matt, what you say and I believe you, your You position. go to every single town up the east of England <laughs> and, and you'll find... And you'll find 25% of the population of every single one of those towns and cities is now East European, and that's happened since 2004. My fear is, is that... In some cases, 30% plus. Is that I believe you, and that I think that you do want controlled migration, yeah. and I do think that you are, you know, tolerant and decent in terms of, you know, Europeans coming here. My fear is that this sort of hyperbole and, and the way in which UKIP sometimes conducts itself is maybe not a green light, but it's certainly an amber light to people on the far right that say, well, actually, Nigel Farage is now pretty much part of the mainstream. He's an acceptable face of far-right politics, they might see it, and say, well, well he's, he's toning it down. But he says Britain's ghettoised, and then that just leads to a train of thought where people actually do end up supporting the BNP, and it, it almost encourages that wing of politics. Well, I think the BNP, um, I'm told they're in serious financial trouble, uh, very serious financial trouble, and could even go bankrupt um, and disappear as a party. Um, uh, that, and that would be a bad thing. I want the BNP to continue um, because I want, when I meet people on the streets of Eastleigh or elsewhere, um, who say to me, uh, well, of course, we don't want immigration because we hate all foreigners. I say, that's great. That's fine. That's your point of view. Please go and vote BNP. And I, don't, I, I don't want the support of those people. I don't need the support of those people. What I've done, Matt, far from trying to stir up discontent, what I think I've done is to try to make immigration and border control, a sensible, respectable, mainstream political issue where everybody else tried literally, ever since Powell's disastrous speech, people tried for 40 years to brush it under the carpet and not talk about it. We've got to talk about it. Is he not Powell a hero of yours? Um, as a man, in terms of his life achievements, in many ways, yes. Um, as a politician, no. He was a disaster. And I think one of the reasons uh, we're having this debate now is I think his speech in 68... Uh, was so badly judged that he actually killed it off of the topic, as I say, for over 40 years. He is a, he's a poster boy, though, isn't he, for a lot of people on the far right. I mean, where would you say, in terms of the, the, the political compass, would, would you describe yourself as, as right-wing, as far-right, or as centre-right? How would you describe yourself? A Gladstonian liberal. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I mean, look, Matt, I hate big government. I hate big government. I can't stand government telling me what I can and can't do. Um, I... I find big government even more objectionable um, when it's based overseas and run by people that we can't vote for and we can't remove and who in most cases have got no dress sense either. So, <laughs> so I... No, I mean, I, you know, I, am, I have a strong libertarian, classical liberal streak in me and I, I don't regard myself as an old-fashioned, authoritarian, right-wing Shire Tory. So the thing is, when you talk about government overseas. I mean, we are part of that government. We have Well, that's a mistake. British Commission. I know, but you make it sound like we have no voice in it. Britain's one of the strongest voices in Europe. Well, you want to come and see it. I mean, I've got a voice and I try and exercise it. I give my speeches, uh, which one or two here may have seen on YouTube, and I try and be as helpful as I can, you know, um, all the time. Um, they're not listening, clearly. Um, there are 27 European commissioners and we have one commissioner. Yeah, but everyone else has one. Mark Hugh, Mark Hugh, Mark Hugh. Our commissioner's a giant, because we've got Baroness Ashton. I mean, isn't that amazing? Doesn't that warm the cockles of your heart to know <laughs> that the former treasurer of the, of the campaign for nuclear disarmament is now our treasurer in Brussels? I don't think so. 
Um, but, I mean, we have an a nuclear disarmament in the long term would be quite good. Uh, yes, and so would motherhood and apple pie, and, um, you know, communism was a wonderful theory. It just didn't work in practice. Um, so, um, but don't you think there's, there's a danger in the way that you sell Europe as being by other people, for other people, we're not involved? We are as much of a part of Europe. I understand that France and Germany is the major power axis there, but we are as much of a part of Europe as anyone else. In fact, we're, we have a greater say. And if we're well organised... Uh, well, in, in terms According of... According to whom? Well, in when we chose Barroso, effectively organised with some of the smaller nations to get Barroso as the... As the, as hang, the on, hang on, hang on. So when we chose Barroso... So who in this room had a vote? Well, but that's what representative democracy is. None of us had oh, a vote on NHS reform. What, so we just bypassed this lot, did we? Well, no, no, no. That's what general elections are for. Did, did, anybody, did anybody here vote for Barroso in the general election? Well, no. But <laughs> this oh, is the oh, yeah, and because he, he gets very upset with me, old Barroso. He really does. And, <laughs> and, um, and I, in some ways, I can't believe the irony of it all, really, because here I am in Strasbourg, and I've got seat number 20 on the front row, and poor old Barroso's seat number 21. I can almost touch the button, <laughs> you know. And of course, I enjoy the whole thing far more than he does. But when I say, when I say to Barroso, as I regularly do, you know, you are an unelected, unelected president of the European Commission. And he always fights back and says, no, no, no. He says, I was elected by the European Parliament. Well, ladies and gentlemen, he's right. Mr. Barroso was elected by the European Parliament. Do you know how long the list of candidates we had to choose from was? One. <laughs> One. He was presented as the only possible candidate and the Parliament voted for him. I didn't. But the Parliament, and these guys have got huge power. They've got far more power over our lives mm. than the jokers in, in number 10 Downing Street. You know, this is where most of our legislation is set. It is fundamentally not just undemocratic but anti-democratic. And I, I don't just want Britain out of the European Union. I want Europe out of the European Union. Because that flag, that anthem, rumpy pumpy, <laughs> and all that, and all that. I mean, what have they got to do with Europe? They hijacked the word and the concept of Europe. There is no democratic consent in any European country for being part of a state called Europe. None. I don't think there is, and I think you're right. And the European Parliament elections bear that out, that we're roughly around 30%. I don't think that's a mandate. I mean, you got elected as an MEP on about 18% of a... 35% vote. You know, that isn't enough people, really, is it? I mean, every MEP has that problem, and that's why you want to reform it. It wasn't a point against you, but I don't think most people could name who their four or five MEPs were, or who well, the leaders... Well, if you met them, you wouldn't want to name them, believe you. They're a pretty hopeless lot. I agree with you that there is a... There is God, a, I'm popular over there, you can tell, can't you? I agree with you that there's a democratic problem at the heart of Europe, mm. and that the Parliament itself, which is technically elected by us, isn't accountable, let alone the Commission. The Council of Ministers sort of is, mm. because we do you know, delegate power to our leaders <coughs> abroad uh, to act in that way. I have a genuine problem with the institutions of Europe. I'm pro-European in terms of trade, in terms of the democracy. I think it's an absolute crisis. But I say reform it. Well, for 40 years, um, every single British Prime Minister and opposition leader has promised at every single general election that if elected, they would reform the common agricultural policy. And over 40 years, we have achieved no reform at all. Well, one minor reform. Um, I mean, now, um, if you're the Queen or the Duke of Devonshire... Um, or a giant agribusiness, you're now making even more money out of the system than you were 40 years ago. You cannot reform something uh, that actually has been set up with a fundamental structural flaw. And, and I want, I mean, look, you know, I genuinely think we have to have a 
cooperative structure with our European neighbours. Mm -hmm. um, I think the Council of Europe idea, as set up in 1948, was a very, very good idea, where we can sit around the table as heads of state, agree sensible common minimum standards on the environment or the workplace or whatever it may be. But we do that as nation states. What we don't do is give away the ability to make those decisions to somebody else and then at the end of the process have an 8% say. Of it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. My concern in terms of Britain's future in the world is that power is clearly shifting east. How does Britain, which is a largely service sector economy now, weather itself against the <coughs> ravages of this new economic order? By being independent, flexible and adaptable. Um, and you talk about Britain's role in the world. Okay, let's think about trade. Okay? So when the World Trade Organization meets, and if you think about what GATT have done and WTO have done, you know, they fundamentally changed tariffs over the course of the last 40 years. When the World Trade Organization meets, the British delegates are asked to leave the room. So we're the sixth biggest trading nation on earth, and when the world trade talks happen, we're asked to leave the room. Why? Because our trade is negotiated for us by a European commissioner. We haven't got the ability to negotiate either through WTO or through bilateral agreements our own trade deals. And a little country like Switzerland, you know, which has got a sixth of the population that we've got, the Swiss have more trade deals and more bilateral arrangements around the world than we do because they're flexible, adaptable, and because they've recognized that the future of this world is global. And Europe is a concept, or the Europe we've got, is a concept that is half a century out of date. It has an over-regulated social market model. Um, it is protectionist. We talk about over-regulation of the social market. You know, see, that was something that I disagreed with John Major on and was proud that Tony Blair signed the social chapter to bring in things like the minimum wage, protection for workers. I mean, I think... Any government that brought that in should be commended. And we, we had a government at home that wasn't going to give us that. Thank God Europe existed to protect. We talk about, we talk about health and safety and all those <coughs> things. They've saved British lives. They've protected British jobs. They've given British workers, finally, enough money to be able to heat well, their homes. They, they probably directly caused the loss of half a million jobs. Now, there's a balance well, here, no, when the there? minimum went, There is a, a balance a, here. A year after the minimum wage was brought in, unemployment had gone up by a million. There's a balance here, isn't there, you know, between complete laissez-faire putting kids up chimneys, all right? <laughs> well, well, that's the one side. Um, and the other side is... To work, not to sleep. You know, no, 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 no. Housing crisis as well. No, no, we saw Jimmy Savile earlier, didn't we? <laughs> the, um, uh, no, there's a balance there between total laissez-faire and exploitation of people and a model 
uh, that actually becomes so prohibitive and expensive that it drives business But the overseas. minimum wage isn't prohibitively the, expensive, the, is it, the, the, the minimum wage isn't, no. And, I, and, and you made that argument. I didn't make that argument. Yeah. But the working time directive most certainly is. Well, I think the, wor the working time directive has taken away from companies a huge degree of flexibility. More seriously has been the climate change, uh, carbon emissions trading schemes, um, climate levies. That's the stuff that's really cost-producing. It's fair to say that you're a sceptic on climate change. Um, well, I'm not a scientist. Um, I have no idea whether CO2 leads to global warming any more than there's anybody else in this room. What I do know is there's been no global warming since 1995. None. 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 Absolutely none. And, you know, and the IPCC, they're all getting desperate now. They're getting desperate because all the predictions back in the 90s that the world was warming, they have a huge problem. The world has cooled marginally since 1995. But whether... CO2 leads to global warming. I don't know. I've no idea. What I do know is what we're doing to combat it, whilst at the same time the Chinese and Indians have chosen to ignore it completely. I mean, we produce, there's us, um, the people, the cows, um, the horses. Sorry, is that a euphemism for a European the, country? The, the, the horses that haven't been killed um, and put into burgers, um, the steel works we've got left, we produce 3% of the total global CO2 that is put out every year. Um, and uh, to see both our aluminium smelters, to see uh, big steel plants in the northeast of England, to see now our cement industry announce they're leaving Britain, to all relocate to India, which is a zero-sum game globally on CO2, mm. even if you're worried about it, strikes me as being very bad politics. And that's been done, Matt. Not because number 10 Downing Street's decided to do it, it's been done because Brussels has decided to do well, it. Well, we can't change it. The erosion of our manufacturing base took place a long time. Well, then why accelerate it? Well, no, because the erosion of the manufacturing base took place by a Tory party that you remember of at the time. That I eroded. Was. That eroded our well, manufacturing base. If, if you were so, you know, caring about manufacturing, about our coal mines, about our steelworks, <laughs> what, what do you well, think? Well, the argument was, the, the argument then was don't go on subsidising loss-making companies like British Leyland. So British Leyland went, and thousands of people lost their jobs. But we're now manufacturing more cars in Britain than we ever were in the history of this country. And we should say, hooray, that actually there are some, there are some successes in British manufacturing. But the disaster in British manufacturing are the industries that use vast amounts of electricity. Because we, we have put 20% on the price of electricity to pay for the wind turbines and all the rest of it. And we're driving, deliberately now driving, our manufacturing in, uh, industries across to India, and that strikes me as being mad. I don't think the government is deliberately, and I don't even think of this as the Tory government, of deliberately driving jobs abroad. We've signed it up. We've signed we, up. We've, Nigel, we've already become a service sector economy. The, the, you know, our manufacturing base eroded under, uh, over a number of years, and we've become a service sector economy now. No. Not because of no. global emissions, no. No. There are bits but because of people are, are able to offer cheaper wages abroad. There are bits of manufacturing, like the British car industry, that are now a huge success story, and we must not just go on saying all British manufacturing is a failure, because it isn't. But it's about having a bit... It's, no, 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 I think that... Uh, I didn't mean it in that regard. I'm very proud of British manufacturing. I want more of it here. I think, actually, so Britain's future is about having better agriculture, a, a self-sufficient energy policy... Uh, largely reliant on nuclear, I imagine, and a, and a thriving and growing manufacturing centre. We have to be able to make our own stuff again. But the main reason that manufacturing has left this country isn't because of green targets or, or global warming. It's because people abroad were, were paying <coughs> cheaper wages. Well, you know, if you run a business, there are a whole host of factors. 
Labour costs clearly are a huge factor. But if you've just had 21% put on your electricity bills over the course of the last few years to pay for wind turbines so that people like David Cameron's father-in-law can be paid £1,000 a day just to put wind turbines on his land, you have a problem. But Nigel, innovate. You know, these are the great challenges of this new era. It's the business to innovate, to, to build cars. I don't like the Toyota Prius. <laughs> but build cars that are, that are sustainable. And whether or not global warming is real, what is definitely true is if you pump the air full of harmful emissions, it is bad for people's health. At the very least, that is true. You haven't got we to want to live in an area. Man. I want to live in a country where we've got clean air. I don't want to be pumping a load of rubbish into, Matt, the, Matt, into let people's me, mouths. Let me, let me make a confession. We ended up talking like you now. This is the problem. Let me make a confession. <laughs> no, you, you're doing very well. The, <laughs> the, yeah, it could be the fourth one, the or three. Um, Matt, I'm going to make a confession to you now, and it, and it is quite a serious one. Um, <laughs> I did once vote green. When? So there, yeah, no, I did once vote green. I voted green back in 89 uh, when Jonathan Porritt ran the Green Party, and I... Unlike the loops that are running it now. <laughs> and I voted Green. I was a member of every environmental organisation there was. Um, and I genuinely am concerned about pollution, about our rivers, about our seas. I've campaigned as an MEP against the exploitation of West African fish stocks and all the rest of it. So I'm, I'm a bit of a Greenie and a conservationist at heart. But I really do question whether carbon dioxide is a harmful problem, given that actually if you've got a greenhouse and you're you know, running a market garden, you pump CO2 in because the plants grow better. So I just question our whole thinking on this. We've, we, we, we've, probably, we've probably got this disastrously wrong. Have you ever tried to live in a greenhouse? <laughs> no. Um, actually, well... If I had, I'd be taller, wouldn't I? <laughs> but, uh, but it's impossible because it gets too hot. <laughs> I'd be a lot taller. Um, no, I mean, I, you know, I, polluting our seas and our rivers, polluting our air with carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, I'm with you all the way. Yeah. Carbon dioxide. But this, the, you have I to mean, One volcanic eruption, one volcanic eruption puts more CO2 into the atmosphere that mankind produces every decade. But that doesn't mean mankind shouldn't try and limit it if it's dangerous. Why would you limit something if you weren't sure but that actually it was dangerous? But the weight of scientific opinion is that it is. No, uh, that the is Royal paid, Society think it is. paid for scientific opinion. I mean, the IPCC... But international. I mean, we're talking about different people. Well, the IPCC was set up... Do you think there's a global conspiracy uh, on climate change? I think that the IPCC <laughs> is a completely discredited organisation because it was set up to prove that climate change was happening, and the salaries of all the people working there were dependent on them showing that there was this huge, alarming problem about to confront us. I had no idea that the Independent Police Complaints Commission <laughs> so overreached <laughs> itself. <laughs> <laughs> really are a bunch of meddlers. Um, no, so I'd like to talk about sort of other policies, really, because you're not just a single-issue party, even though people... I thought we were. I, mean, I was trying to help you out. How I mean, disappointing. But, do you, I mean, it's... How hard has it been? Because people, most people will not be aware of your policies on other areas. They'll know that you want withdrawal from the EU. Yeah. You've almost made that single-mindedly your number one message. Well, at what, we point, have, yeah. at what point do you start to deviate away from that? I mean, if there was to be a referendum, and if we did pull out of the I EU, would the, UKIP I now be defunct? No, I mean, the deviation stuff, I put all that behind me. That was the, <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, that was the old me, believe you me. Um, 
we've, we've argued on the European question uh, because 75% of our laws are now made in Brussels. You know, I mean, today, wasn't interesting, that, that, that today, the environment minister today, having given a whole load of speeches about horse meat in burgers, um, went to see the bosses today. He went to Brussels. Because nothing he can do about it. Nothing, I mean, Owen Patterson can't do anything. The only people that can decide how to get better labelling, um, how to you know, deal with the whole food chain problem that goes on are the European commissioners. And whether it's that, whether it's open-door immigration, whether it's uh, business regulation, whether it's the global warming problem or otherwise and how we deal with it, um, frankly, the British government is impotent on all of these things. So that's why that's become the central part of what we've campaigned for. On food there, though, to be fair to Europe, Europe has been really the main centre of leading food safety and, and food information. The traffic light system is very helpful and in terms of forcing manufacturers to publish. Before, we didn't have that. And I don't think if we stayed out of the European Union, that would have become such a priority. I, I, I don't think um, that the EU's uh, rules and regulations on food have been positive or negative. They've been fairly neutral, frankly. I mean, all of those things we would have done, we, we, we done anyway because consumerism, consumer activism... Um, is, is, is now a bigger force in society. But, that, uh, you know, I'm not arguing that everything that comes from Brussels is awful. Most of it is, obviously, but, you know, not all of it is. All right, well, what good um, stuff But do what you I'm have arguing is we can't change it. I mean, the, the whole point... Look, I, was, I, I voted for Thatcher in the 80s. I was a radical economic liberal, and I felt we had to get rid of British Leyland. We had to control the trade unions. We had to become a country that was fit for international investment. And it worked at a huge price... And many parts of the north of England will never forgive the Tory government for doing it. Well, you talk about creating but, ghettos, but, Nigel, but earlier. I mean, no. that's effectively what that... Oh, South that you did. And that there yeah, no, 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 no. I've, I've never, ever, ever, I've never, ever, ever disagreed with that point. You know, places like South Yorkshire became wastelands. Well, parts of North Nottinghamshire as well. And as a result these of These are remote that policy. mining communities that haven't been replaced with any centre of employment. And these people, white British well, people that should be your core vote, actually, actually, you at the time were championing an economic policy, left these people behind. Actually, North Nottinghamshire uh, wasn't destroyed by Thatcher. It was, it, it was destroyed by Major. North Nottinghamshire broke with Scargill, if you remember. It did. Broke with Scargill. The UDM. Roy Link broke away from Scargill. Um, they then broke every coal production record that ever been seen in this country, and it was major that closed the mines down. And that was something, I, I, I mean, I'd left the Tory party by then, uh, and I was appalled by what happened with that particular example. Thatcherism came at a price, but the point was this, that, you know, if you'd been supporting Michael Foote, and I've been supporting Margaret Thatcher, well, I mean, you're a Labour man, uh, not very old Labour, I have to say, but uh, the point was, who we voted for in general elections fundamentally changed the way the country was. All we're doing now we're not voting for a change of government, we're voting for a change of management. Oh, Nigel, come on. I mean, you could look at, in terms of our, the way our public services are run, they were transformed under Tony Blair. That clearly took a political will, and the government in Westminster transformed. We opted out of the social chapter, Tony Blair opted well, back in. Well, Blair transformed it by, by, by employing a further million public civil servants, uh, by doubling expenditure on the National Health Service. All of those things he did, no question. Uh, whether actually they were very efficient or not, I don't know. Come on, Nigel, there must be parts of the southeast where you represent that you must be able to see the transformation in schools and hospitals. I've seen brand new hospitals built um, that look fantastic from the outside, uh, and, and in not all, but in some of them, uh, where rates of infection um, and, and, and actually uh, improvement rates in terms of cancer care and stroke care um, are no better than they were before that vast amount of money was put in. So, I, I mean, the worry is 
You know, I think we all want a proper national health service. The worry is, how do we get value for money out of it? I'm not sure Blair provided that. Value for money is another issue, but in terms of heart disease, cancer care, waiting lists... We're still way behind. We're still way behind, but phenomenal strides were made, and that was because a different government came into Westminster and made a political decision. That had nothing to do with you. Okay, no, no, listen, fair point. There are two areas of our life where the UK government's in control. Health and education. Health and education. Crime to an extent? Police on the streets? Um, Police numbers, yes. Uh, But in terms of how we deal with with, with criminals or foreign criminals, no. It makes no difference at all. Don't forget, I mean, there are 12,000 foreign prisoners now in British jails. And nothing we can do about it because of European law. Personally, I would say, if you're a foreigner that commits a crime, you go. As the Australians would. Well, I agree. But this is the problem, is that I still believe enough in Europe and, and the, the trade benefits that it brings, I think it's brought Why does it bring social benefits? benefits? Why does it bring trade benefits? Well, because it's the removal of tariffs across the Eurozone. But, the, but tariffs have gone globally. GATT and WTO have seen tariffs on manufacturing. Forget agriculture, because that's a, you know, literally a basket case in every sense. But tariffs have gone globally anyway. Norway, Switzerland and Mexico have the same terms of trade with Europe that we do. All three of those are not members of the European Union. We have benefited economically through being a bridge to Europe, particularly from America, and our links to the Eurozone. Obama himself has said it would be silly for Britain ah, to collaborate. well, let me come back to the Americans in a moment. Um, <laughs> but the weight of international opinion, actually, Nigel, is that it's good for Britain to well, be of course, part of Europe for trade. Of course, big business and big government and the big banks, the unholy triple alliance, but you were, they you all used to support. Work for a big bank, Nigel. They all, yeah, they sacked me for insubordination <laughs> and for making these points. And I, I was then self-employed for the last nine years. Uh, working in that industry. No, there is, I mean, there is, there is this alliance between, you know, as I say, the big business, the big banks, the big government, and they all love Europe. Now, just, just think about the Americans. Now, uh, the Yanks say we must stay part of the European Union. Um, just as the Americans, when they came to Downing Street in 1966 and said to Harold Wilson, one of your rather better leaders in some ways, um, and said to Wilson, we have a special relationship you must come to fight in Vietnam. And Wilson said, no, we won't come to fight in Vietnam, thereby saving thousands of British lives. In 82, the Americans said to us, you must not go and reclaim the Falkland Islands. We ignored them, we retook the Falkland Islands. And then when your mate was running the country, you know, the greatest warmonger ever, Blair, and the Americans say, please come into Afghanistan, please come into Iraq, we follow them, and in both cases, we've had not just huge losses, but actually achieved nothing at all. So, my, so I think, when it comes to foreign policy advice, we should ignore the Americans. <laughs> foreign policy is one thing. Do defend Mr. Blair to me in all these wars, because you, you say what a barber's chap he is. Well, I think Blair's the greatest prime minister this country's ever had. Oh. <laughs> right, now... <laughs> now... I like okay, getting booed. Right, now, I'm interviewing him now, OK? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, I want us to come on some of the UK policy. We've sort of gone around in circles. But um, let's have a look at some of the other issues here. Yeah. Uh, on health, you say you'd, elect, you'd create elected county health boards. Yeah. That just feels like another layer of local bureaucracy. No, it's getting rid of bureaucracy. It's actually making decision-making go more local. The big problem uh, with all the health reforms that we've had is actually all of them have resulted in more government centralisation in Whitehall. And our feeling is that we should put out management of healthcare out to a county basis. Would it lead to a postcode lottery? Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Uh, but then uh, what that means is 
uh, that actually we could vote and change the people running those. Now, listen, but do, doesn't that then prove that actually, despite your, I'm not a big fan of big government or big bureaucracy, but some bureaucracy is necessary to ensure that within an area there is fair treatment so that you eradicate things like a postcode lottery. You only really do that through having a certain amount of bureaucracy. Well, um, the attempt to eliminate the postcode lottery has led, um, since Blair, uh, or Brown, of course, that, that, that genius that ran our economy for years. <laughs> what a cretin. God. <laughs> um, That's the Labour people clapping. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. You know, all that money we spent, and it was all supposed to be about better health care. The argument was we were spending a lower percentage of our GDP than France and Germany on health care, yeah. and that we would then not just spend the same as them, but more than them. We did. We did all of that. And during that, during that period, during that 11-year uh, period, wh 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 when, when the big increase in expenditure was coming, um, the administrative staff running the National Health Service centrally increased by 44%. We also got more frontline nurses and doctors than the NHS had ever had. Uh, we did, but proportionately, more of it went on bureaucracy, more of it went on centralised management. Look, there is one big flaw. There is one big flaw. You know, UKIP believes in direct democracy. UKIP believes in real democracy. We want, look, we want power back from Brussels to Westminster. We want power from Westminster to go to Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, Kent County Council. And we want the ultimate power, which is the ability for us to call a referendum on a key national issue. There is one big drawback in what we've just said about health. Uh, you know, and, and the flaw in UKIP's policy is this, that we tried this with police commissioners, mm. and not many people turned out to vote. So I do accept there is a flaw in the problem, that if you want to have an active democracy, that's one thing, but to get people to engage with it is quite another. On crime, you say that you're going to focus the police on solving serious crimes, which is a good idea. Uh, Make a change, wouldn't it? <laughs> Rather than concentrating on thought crime. What, yeah. what, what thought crimes would you like to see? Well, I mean, they're spending. They're spending. The amount of the police budget that is now spent on training our police force, on, you know, gender awareness, um, and, 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 and the whole <laughs> equality rights agenda, frankly, it's bonkers. And you talk to any, anybody working in the police force now, and to make an arrest, a simple street arrest now means, you know, what may take 10 minutes on the street is two hours in the office. Yeah, I understand form filling and, you know, yeah. I worked in the public sector. I went on equality and, and diversity training. It's chronic, it's chronic. Um, but at least it had a good buffet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, what, what is thought crime? Because, it, Nigel, I mean, to be fair, if the last Labour government was locking people up for thought crime, you'd co you couldn't be doing a 10 stretch. <laughs> well, I think if Van Rumpel had his way, I will be. Um, yeah, no, I think, look, I, I, I think, you know, what we want from the police force um, is proper street policing. What we want uh, from our courts is a proper sentencing regime. Um, I, I'm, I'm all for, Matt, I'm all for, you know, first offenders being given every possible opportunity of re-education and everything else. And I think it's very important we do that. And, you know, your joke about whom doing a stretch and coming out as a hard man, the evidence is... Huge numbers of young people go to prison and come out worse mm. than they went in. And that, and that is a huge problem and a huge worry. However, you have a certain recidivist tendency in society who, whatever you do to them, whether you're nice to them or nasty to them, go out and repeat the pen and repeat the pen and repeat the pen. Um, and I think in those cases, we seriously have to think 
about building more prisons. Right, I'll take some questions to the audience now. People can sort of clearly indicate. I can see most people. Um, there's a hand at the back there, if you'd like to stand up. Yeah, what's your I, name? I can't see him, is it? Uh, Ted. And what would you like to ask Ted? Um, I'll repeat the question, by the way, so that we can get it on the podcast. That's a nice balance question. What was that? How long do you think it <laughs> How long do you think it will be before the British people get a chance to leave the EU? Uh, the one thing I do know The undemocratic EU. Yeah, absolutely. There you are two should, types. You should have gone a lot further than that, really. Um, the one thing I do know is that if UKIP hadn't existed, it wouldn't even be on the agenda. Because the political class are all sold on this. Lib Lab Con, they're sold on the idea. Um, you know, they they're, they're more than happy for most of our laws to be made somewhere else, um, and they're contemptuous, actually, of us having our say. And Matt joked earlier that, you know, what Miliband is saying is, fuck you, I don't care what you think. <laughs> well, it's what you said. Sort of, yeah. I'm just repeating. I'm, 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 I'd love to hear Ed Miliband say that. I like the lot of you could just fuck over. <laughs> fuck you. I don't think he's told anyone ever to fuck off. I'd like him more if he had. I agree. More, more, more people have vote for him. But I, mean, but, I mean, Cameron himself, five times that I know of on the public record, said we must not have a referendum on our EU membership because I believe Britain must stay part of the European Union. So that was Cameron's form of fuck you, wasn't it? You know, I've made my mind up. You can't have your say. Now he said we're going to have our say. Um, uh, this is the same guy who, back in 2007, in the sun, not on page three, but page two, wrote that big article saying, I give you this cast-iron guarantee that if I become the Prime Minister uh, of the United Kingdom, I will give you a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty. And what did he do? He let us down like a cheap pair of braces. Completely <laughs> reneged. Completely reneged. So now I'm asked, well, Nigel, isn't your job done? Because we've got, you know, Dave... Who's going to do the business? Well, it's if he wins the next election, which I've got to tell you looks just about impossible to me. But do you think, Nigel, Cameron's put it on the agenda largely thanks to a lot of the campaigning you've yes. done. Labour will be forced at the next election. Oh, don't you think? I mean, don't you think whoever, whoever wins the next election will probably end up having a referendum? Do you not think it's now inevitable? Well, we've got a tradition now, going back to 97, that at every single election. But this is different now. The, the, gra the ground has clearly significantly shifted. This is a new mood, isn't it? We've had, at every election since 97, all three parties have offered a referendum and all three parties have reneged. Um, but I do think the debate's changed. And I think the one thing Cameron has done, unwittingly, firstly, he's entirely legitimised the UKIP position. Because to say we shouldn't be part of the EU, I mean, this was something uh, that really was only allowed to take place uh, between consenting adults with a door locked, you know. I mean, and we just turned a blind eye to it, you know. Um, and now he's made that a mainstream opinion. Um, but I also think what he's done, he's sparked a debate on this. And I was in Portsmouth on Monday uh, doing a debate against the former Tory MEP called Roy Perry. How many people here have ever heard of Roy Perry? There we are. It's back to your point about MEPs. But what was amazing was you know, a bit of advertising in the Portsmouth Evening News, a few leaflets around the city of Portsmouth, 450 people turned up to listen to that debate. So we are going to get a referendum, and I would just, in, in final answer to that, I would say this, the stronger UKIP gets, the sooner the referendum will happen. 
And could somebody be kind enough to get me a Rioja? Because I'm getting a bit dry up here. Bit of a dry old school, wasn't it? Okay, the, the chap at the back, what's your name, mate? If we could keep the answers brief so we can take a few people, that would be great, Nigel. Jamie. Jamie. If we were not subject, if we were not subject to the European Court of Human Rights, then I wouldn't have a problem with the word marriage being used in a registry office. The difficulty is this. If we allow the word marriage to be used in a registry office, then a case, and Tatchell will do it, and he said so already, then a case will be taken to the ECHR, which is the highest court in our land, to say that if one... Oh, I say, that's a good chat. <laughs> I've forgotten the question now. No. <laughs> that if one, um, I wasn't going to say organ of the state, but perhaps that's a bad way of putting it in this context. Uh, but if, if, if one official state institution is allowed to use the word marriage, it would, be, it would be discriminatory from another state institution, and in this case the established church, as written, as written into our constitution not to do so, and I think there is a tremendous risk that the faith communities will be forced into conducting services that they find complete anathema to them. And I think if we think about the concept... But they've been given safeguards in the legislation. But that's irrelevant all the while. The ECHR is the highest court in our land. And I think the concept of liberty But means Nigel, you could say that you wouldn't have a policy on anything. Hang on, hang on, hang on. The concept of liberty means that we actually have to respect that different people have different <coughs> opinions and they both need to be respected. Then why not let them both marry? <laughs> um, I'm not sure I get that, man. Well, because gay people aren't trying to stop heterosexual marriage. No, the argument is... I mean, I mean, I mean the argument uh, that, that, that Judy Bindle and, uh, and others are putting out is that actually marriage should be abolished completely. That, I mean, that, that, that is now... There's now a very open campaign to abolish marriage completely, and to make the whole thing civil partnerships. One divorcee on the balcony cheering. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're all liars. Yeah. Gay or straight, they'll screw you well, in the end. Well, I tell you what, there's a divorcee on the stage that thinks that too. <laughs> <laughs> That's not me, by the way. Um, right, the, well, uh, Alan Pardew down at the front. <laughs> Yes, right. What's your name? Uh, my name's Andy. Andy. Nigel, what would you say to people who are sceptical about the European Union but are horrified by your vision of Britain? To people who, you know, believe in global warming, believe in gay marriage, believe in liberal immigration and a liberal Britain, but yeah. don't really like the European Union. I mean, they can't really vote for UKIP, can they? Well, it depends, doesn't it, on what you think. That depends on what you think the single most important political constitutional question of our time is. I believe that the, that the most important question is, should we be a self-governing nation or not? And I've had this debate with Bob Crow. Now, Bob and I, this may not surprise you, don't agree on everything. But we do agree that when it comes to, you know, social protection in the labour marketplace or whatever else it is. What Bob and I do agree on 100% is that we should be able to have this debate, and, and you and I, sir, should be able to have this debate at a general election, where the government we vote for actually has the power to undo legislation 
or to make new legislation. None of that can happen, all the while most of our laws are made somewhere else. And, and you know, if you think about it, the fundamental principle of a parliamentary democracy is that you can vote for somebody who can get rid of the entire statute book and replace it with something else. When your laws are made by the European Commission, it doesn't matter if you vote for you know, 100% of Parliament opposed to one piece of European legislation, there is nothing we can do to change it. And what we've surrendered, what we've given away, we've given away the very principle of parliamentary democracy, of the ability to have proper arguments and debates on things, and I want to have that back. Wouldn't it be easier, Nigel, for you to have supported gay marriage, tried to reach out to a few Liberal people? I mean, did you not support it because you thought, you saw the rebellion that David Cameron had, that perhaps it would have been worse in UK? You're suggesting that I would try and cause misery in David Cameron's Conservative Party. That's an absolutely <laughs> wicked thing for you to suggest. Um, I answered the question sincerely to the gentleman at the back that asked it. I said, if, if, if I felt that the use of the word marriage in a ceremony, in a registry office, did not pose a threat to those of the faith communities that they would not find legally, through the ECHR, it being imposed upon them, oh, I wouldn't on, have a problem. You could have been brave, couldn't you? You could have been brave and taken a stand and said, you keep us an open party, we believe in gay marriage. I mean, do you, do you have members that are homophobic? Does the Labour Party have homophobic members? I think it does, yes. Well, there you are. The, 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 there is homophobia, there is discrimination, there is racism through every single segment of our society. But is we, it more marked in UK? <coughs> I wouldn't say it is. And actually, you know, in terms of the, of the percentage of gay people who are active uh, candidates and officials in UKIP. You know, we've, I mean, I wouldn't know whether our percentage is comparable with the Conservatives. Most of them don't talk about it, of course. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but uh, no, no, and uh, no. But, I mean, you know, I mean, listen, there is no hang-up with this issue with UKIP at all, but there is a threat to the faith communities. And I must say, I think that, you know, the Catholic Adoption Agency, for argument's sake... Yeah closing down because they were told they were not allowed to continue to have children adopted with purely heterosexual couples, frankly, was a self-defeating goal in a country where more and more kids are living in care every year. I think that's arguable. Nigel, uh, all that remains, really, is for, <laughs> for you to do is to provide me with a question next month for, for Charles Clark, the former Home Secretary. What would you like me to ask? Uh, two questions. Number one, could you please, Charles, smile a bit more because you're too sodding serious. Um, <laughs> And the subrider to that is you represent a very working-class part of Norwich, uh, which is um, one of those towns. It's not quite on the A1, but it's not too far away. Um, and I'd like you to ask him. I'd like you to ask him how he can justify the change of population that has occurred in Norwich since 2004, um, and how he can justify to working-class people in his constituency the fact that so many of them haven't got jobs. In his, yeah, in his former constituency. Yeah, former, but you know... He's, he's still he's roaming around calling himself an MP. <laughs> <laughs> well, well. There will be a few more questions I need to ask you. But, 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 but he still supports the football club, doesn't he? He certainly does. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for coming. Thank Next you, month, we have Charles Clark. That's on Wednesday the 13th of March. Uh, Charles Clark was uh, Home Secretary for many years. He introduced legislation that would introduce ID cards, a highly controversial measure that we haven't yet had. And he was also very vocal uh, in his um, opposition to Gordon Brown towards the end of the new Labour area. So he's a, he's a fascinating guest. But ladies and gentlemen, before we thank the people at the venue, the St James Theatre and all the people at Avalon who've made this possible, please, we've run well over because he's been such a phenomenal guest and such an entertaining man. Please show your appreciation for the wonderful Nigel Farage. <laughs>
Right, well, very good. The show will be uh, available on iTunes in a few weeks. You can download the George Galloway show on iTunes. We'll, we'll podcast it monthly, but please do come back for Charles Clark. You can buy your tickets upstairs. Thank you all for coming uh, and making it such a wonderful night. I've been Matt Ford. He's been Nigel Farage. Let's have a bite. See you next Well, there you go, the legend Nigel Farage. I had no idea whether he was joking or whether he was being serious for most of that interview, to be honest, but you can see why you could be become so successful with him at the helm. He's a very entertaining man, and he was thoroughly entertaining on the night. My next guest is the former Home Secretary, Charles Clark. Charles has led a phenomenal career. He was Chief of Staff to Neil Kinnock in those tumultuous years that Labour had in opposition. Then he was Home Secretary under Tony Blair, Highly controversially introduced the legislation that was going to bring in ID cards. He had to resign, if you remember, when it was revealed that illegal immigrants were working at the Home Office. Then under Gordon Brown, he was very critical of his leadership. And then he lost his own seat at the last general election in Norwich. So he's had an incredible career, plenty of highs and lows. He was always very thoughtful and very considered, Charles Clark. So he'd be a very interesting guest. I'm sure he'd be very candid as well. Tickets are available at the website, www.stjamestheatre.co.uk. And the St James Theatre, if you haven't been to it, is absolutely beautiful down there in Victoria, quite near to Buckingham Palace, lovely part of town. So do come down. Tickets are still available for that one. We're on the middle Wednesday of every month down at the St James Theatre. We've got some guests to be announced in April and May, and then in June we've got Jack Straw. So some big shows on the way as well. Subscribe to the podcast. Please tell your friends about it, and I hope you enjoy it. Until next time. Ta-ra. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.